0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website.
1: Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and under the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation. Call upon thee the heavenly God as upon a father, and to say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Father Paul Shank is a priest of the Roman Catholic
2: Diocese of Harrisburg, where he is director of Respect Life Office. Father Schenck was raised Jewish. He was baptized at 16 years old and was ordained in the evangelical and Anglican traditions. A former Anglican minister, Father Paul Schenck, is founder and chairman of the National Pro-Life Center on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. He and his family came into the Catholic Church in 2004, and today he conducts pro-life ministry in Harrisburg, Annapolis, Washington, D.C., and throughout the country. Please welcome me. Please join me (laughs) in welcoming Father Paul Shank.
3: Thank you very much for your kindness. I'm certain that your very wonderful welcome to me is due to the season as you uh, prepare your hearts to be more charitable. (laughs) And uh, so you welcome me with a great burst of applause before you hear what I have to say but I don't know if Deacon will have one of those meters to measure afterward. (laughs) It's a special joy to be back with you. This is so marvelous and impressive. And uh, oh, I hope this spreads from here all around to the dioceses uh, because this is the heart of the new evangelization. And uh, this is a marvelous, marvelous, demonstration of that. Well, we want to get on to our topic because it's a big one, a very big one. Now, I want to mention just a couple of things. Um, I understand that the Oxford Catholic Bibles are once again gone. This is a voracious crowd. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, I carry these Bibles with me everywhere I go and I schlep them out of the car, and I put them on the table, and then I schlep them back into the car, and here I take them out, and they disappear. But I do have some uh, others with me. I'm going to be using the um, translation which is used in the Jewish community, uh, the English translation of the Masorah, the traditional uh, Jewish Bible, the Hebrew canon. Uh, This Masorah actually means the tradition, the traditional canon. Uh, From the Hebrew, Uh, this one is the Jewish Publication Society version. Uh, You'll see there that uh, it's arranged differently. The Torah, the books of Moses, followed by the Nevi'im, what we would call major and minor prophets, and then the Ketuvim, the writings, which are uh, what we would consider the historical and wisdom books and poetical books. It's arranged slightly differently, arranged in a more traditional form, but uh, all but what we call the deuterocanonical books are there. There's a history behind that. All those deuterocanonical books are known in Judaism. Some of them are relied upon. Without Maccabees, we don't have Hanukkah. So um, just because they're missing here doesn't mean that uh, they don't factor into uh, Jewish religious considerations. But uh, So this is available. These are made available to me. I don't know how this happens, but an Orthodox rabbi uh, provides these to me and uh, he, he, he writes me emails and calls me and he, he says, Father, I have Bibles. Uh, so um, we use them in our, in our teaching work and so forth. Um, I can make them available for a $10 donation. Um, it's considerably below what they sell for. The, the, you see the mark on here from the publisher is $35, of course. We never pay retail. so um, Ten dollars. It's a contribution. It helps our work. It really does. This is one of the ways in which we support our missionary team. On Capitol Hill, and I trust you will be praying as there, are, there were today, approximately 500 that were gathered outside the court, praying in light of the crises that we are currently in that engulfs us. The uh, mandate that's been attached to this effort to make health care available to all and to the poor has been fed a poison pill. And uh, so there was prayer. There is a vigil of prayer tonight, all throughout the night. We anticipate 50 to 100 people praying all throughout the night. They will be there tomorrow as well. My brother and I have been offered seats in the court, uh, and so we should be present for the argument in the court tomorrow, God willing it. So we do ask you to please pray for our justices. As I've said, the division conflict in the Supreme Court today is not between conservatives and liberals, not between Republican and Democrat appointees, not even between Catholics and non-Catholics on the court. You know, the court is only Catholic and Jewish now. So we're, we're making uh, progress. Um, but, uh, but it's not a division there. The division is between two justices on the court. Justice Anthony Kennedy and Justice Anthony Kennedy. Uh, Justice Kennedy, the Catholic soul, and Justice Kennedy, the secular jurist. If this division could be healed, we would see tremendous transformation, really. In the viewpoint of the court. So we ask you to pray for all the justices, and particularly our Catholic justices. I won't name them. We have four who are in the bosom of the church and practicing. We have one wobbly and one wandering. So we ask you to pray for all the justices of the court. All right. Well, I always begin with a scripture text, and I'd like to do so uh, tonight. And that is from 1 Peter, just a little bit of a <clears throat> Wet our appetite uh, for our study in Peter, but uh, the first epistle of St. Peter, chapter 1 and verse 18, you know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot." The word of the Lord. Be to God. Now, as I said, we have been assigned a rather immense subject. The powerful, mystical, at once ancient, ever present, and yet future image, icon, and type. Se ha'elokim, uamnos toteo. Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. Back in the day, when we lived in caves, made fires with flint, and actually picked up hitchhikers on the interstate, (laughs) my wife and I picked up some student types, and they piled into the back seat. Now, I'm not sure whether... Seatbelts had even been invented at that point. And we learned that they were Chicago University students on their way back to school. And it was near Easter, Pascha, Passover. And we took the opportunity to share the gospel of Christ with them. Now, they were unchurched. One was Jewish. And uh, as we got into the conversation, he interrupted me and said, I don't get it. Why did Jesus Christ have to die for our sins? I fail to see any connection. So I said, think back to when you were a child, to the Passover. And I watched in the rear view mirror as he thought about it. And then he said, oh, I get it. I see the connection. Now, what did that Jewish hitchhiker know that made the connection? How did he connect the dots between the Passover and the Christ of Easter? The answer he recalled the Lamb. So let's begin at the end and then work our way back. In the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, there are ten vivid scenes in which appear Anion, the lamb. These are mystic dreamscapes, one in which powerful men cower, calling on boulders to fall on them, so they would be spared from the wrath of the Lamb. In another, a great multitude that no one can number, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, stand before the Lamb. In another are those who worship the beast and have not had their names written in the book of life of the Lamb. Another, the lamb is lord of lords and king of kings. And in the final scene, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flows from the throne of God and of the lamb. These images of the lamb seem far from the dictionary's definition as the diminutive of sheep. This lamb rises far above a docile, submissive weakling. What, or rather, who is this lamb? And what is his purpose? It doesn't take long to be introduced to Christ the Lamb. It happens right away in St. John's Gospel. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. He did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They said to him then, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we know now that Jesus, Son of God and Savior, is also the Lamb. But why? To understand this, we have to journey back in sacred history to a time immemorial to Genesis, Bereshit, the beginning, chapter 4, and verses 3 through 4. In the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the soil, and Abel, for his part, brought the choicest of the firstlings of his flock Now, we go back to the time of Ezra the scribe, who is considered in Jewish tradition as the founder of Bible translation. Because tradition says that Ezra was the first to direct that when the Torah of Moses was read in Hebrew, it was to be translated for the people in their own language so they could understand and assimilate it. And he did this first by offering a translation in Aramaic, which became the foundation of all biblical translation, but in particular, an especially illuminating version of the Scripture. And it is the ancient Aramaic translation called the Targum of Ankylos," which mystically identifies Abel's sacrifice in Genesis chapter 4. This same verse is rendered in the Aramaic Targum this way. It was at the end of days. On the 14th of Nisan, that Cain brought of the produce of the earth, the seed of cotton, or line, an oblation of first things before the Lord. And Havel, or Abel, brought the firstlings of the flock. The Aramaic Bible The language used by our Lord and his apostles makes the unambiguous connection between Abel's acceptable offering and the slaughter of the Passover lamb. Exodus chapter 12 reveals its numinous meaning. Speak to the whole community of Israel and say, On the tenth of this month, which was Nisan, each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a yearling male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep watch over it until the fourteenth day of this month. And all the assembled congregation of Israelites shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. For that night I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And I will mete out punishments to all the gods of Egypt, I the Lord. And the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you so that no plague will destroy you and I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be to you one of remembrance. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout the ages. You shall celebrate it as an institution for all time. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So here we see now the meaning of the 14th of Nisan, and the reason the Aramaic translation brings that over into the Genesis passage. For here we have the emerging mystical meaning of the Passover lamb. If the circumcision of Abraham in Genesis 17 was the birth of the people of Israel, then the Passover from Egypt was their rebirth. St. Paul has a midrash on this, an enlightened commentary. On the exodus from Egypt... He writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, drawing a vivid parallel. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, if Israel had its baptismal rebirth in the Red Sea, It was not without first the shedding of the blood of the Paschal sacrifice. Before we go any further, it's very important that we see the Pesach, the Passover, with its sacrificial lamb, and the Hag Hamatzot, the festival of unleavened bread, as one continuum or triduum the passover the first day and the seventh day of unleavened bread now st paul has another very powerful and enlightening midrash on this in 1 corinthians chapter 5 verses 7 through 8 cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our paschal lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now we begin to see the iconography of the Lamb of God. But it isn't yet complete. Now we must join our Lord for the Seder, the ritual supper of the Passover. St. Luke records it this way. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house which he enters and tell the householder. The teacher says to you. Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found it as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he sat at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after supper, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Here we see that Jesus orders the same vivid rehearsal, as that of the Passover tale. The Passover liturgy is contained in the Haggadah, which leads the Israelites through the whole story of their salvation, the great loss of freedom when they became slaves in Egypt, Moses, the great emissary of liberation who leads them out to the promised land, and finally, the inheritance of that land Flowing with milk and honey. That story has preserved the Jewish people through millennia of deprivations, persecutions, and even genocide. It has become the paradigmatic tale of triumph out of tragedy, inspiring countless generations to rise above their circumstances and lay hold of hope in a better future. This is the ultimate promise of the Eucharist. The essential content of the Eucharist is what Jesus called the anamnesis, the Greek word for the Hebrew zachor, memorial. And it is therefore the commemoration of Christ, which in the Eucharist plays the role of the Haggadah, the Passover tale, which is recounted in the Seder. These words of remembrance, the essence of the Eucharistic liturgy, invite the participants into the reenactment that transmits us to the place where Christ, our Passover, as priest and victim, offers up his own sacrifice as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, sin threatens our ultimate happiness and fulfillment by depriving us, ultimately, of eternal life. And the Eucharist of Christ restores that promise of hope and so infuses our lives with ultimate meaning and purpose that we are destined for union with God For eternity. The signification. Should now become evident to us. And still. We are yet to understand the correlation. Between the bread. And wine. His body. And blood. And the lamb. Let's take the chalice first. In the ancient ritual of the Seder, when recounting the ten plagues, the condemnation of Egypt, a finger is placed in the chalice of wine called the cup of redemption. And a droplet of wine is returned to the chalice for each of the ten plagues. The first is pronounced with an especially somber tone. Dom, blood. Why then does the Lord refer to the matzah, the unleavened bread, as my body which is given for you? Some scholars have pointed to a very intriguing controversy between the Pharisees, who were the clergy to the Am Haaretz, the common people, and the Sadducees, who ruled the temple. The dispute was over the calendar that set the Passover a day apart the Pharisees insisted that the Passover be celebrated on Thursday. And they designated the matzah bread as the substitute for the lamb. So when they looked upon the bread, they saw the lamb. The last supper then would have been on Thursday while the Passover lambs would not be sacrificed in the temple court until Friday afternoon. In this scenario, the imagery of the Passover becomes even more powerful and is perpetuated in the sacred liturgy even today. In the Latin ritual... The priest elevates the consecrated host and declares, Ece Agnus Dei, Ece qui tolit peccata mundi, Beate qui adcenem vocati sunt. Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. The Church Fathers gained deep insight into this imagery of the Lamb. St. John Chrysostom wrote a beautiful recollection on this. Would you like to know where the strength of this blood comes from? Let us return to the old narratives, to what happened in Egypt, to what prefigured it. God was going to inflict the 10th plague on Egypt. He wanted to slay their firstborn because they kept a hold on his firstborn, the chosen people. How could he avoid hurting the Jews as they lived in the same areas as the Egyptians? Observe the power of the figure so as to come to know the power of the reality behind it. The punishment sent by God was going to come from heaven. And the exterminating angel was to do the rounds of the houses. What did Moses order? Slaughter a lamb without blemish. He said, paint the two doorposts with its blood. What does this mean? That the blood of an irrational animal can save the life of men gifted with reason? Yes, Moses would reply. Not because it was blood but because it prefigured the blood of the Lord. That day, the exterminating angel saw the blood on the lintel and the doorposts, and he did not enter. In the present case, if the devil now sees, not the blood of the figure of the lamb indicating the doors, but the real blood on the lips of the faithful marking out the gate of the sanctuary of Christ into which it has been converted, he has all the more reason for refraining from getting involved. For if the figure held the angel back, the real thing will be all the more powerful in routing the devil. Do you want to hear more? (laughs) No wonder he's called Chrysostom. (laughs) Listen to this. It is important that your victory be one of a man overflowing with contentment. If the enemy sees you returning from the banquet of the Lord, he will flee faster than the wind. As one who has seen a lion breathing fire from his mouth. If you show him your tongue tinted with the precious blood, he will not be able to seize you. And if you show him your reddened mouth, like a wretched animal, he will, at great speed, beat retreat. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah. The lamb is not only an image that is taken from the ancient biblical landscape, and I think this is important for us to establish here in light of what we've already surveyed, that the meaning of the lamb is not a past meaning alone, something that hails from an ancient time which is not our time. The lamb, rather, is a very powerful eschatological symbol. The image of the Lamb calls to us not only from the past and what we might refer to as the eternal present. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world but also calls to us from the future, calls us to the great day of the Lord. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states this so wonderfully in number 865. The kingdom has come in the person of Christ and grows mysteriously in the hearts of those incorporated into him until its full eschatological manifestation. The scripture refers to the great and terrible day of the Lord. The day. Now, the day in Hebrew is Hayom. Hayom. When we say the day, Hayom, in Hebrew, we refer not only to the great day of atonement. And this is the first meaning when we say Hayom the day of atonement, which of course is Yom Kippur. There's no day that compares to that day of atonement, and so it's simply the day. But everyone knows what this means when we speak of that. But also, it is the day of God's revealing himself. That is, making himself fully known. So the day is the day of redemption and salvation, the covering of sins. And by the way, this period of time in Judaism is a very solemn and sacred time called Yomim Navarim, the Days of Awe, 10 days between Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And in those 10 days, the rabbis have taught, now for millennia, that every soul passes before God for judgment. Every soul passes before God for judgment. And so there's a tremendous, somber preparation for the day of atonement, for the great day of salvation. But this is also the day of God's revealing himself. And so there is that day yet future, which we invoke in the sacred liturgy. Remember, until he comes again is repeated at least thematically over and over and over again in the sacred liturgy. We are called to focus on that day of Christ's coming, Christ's second coming. So the catechism says that this grows mysteriously in the hearts of those incorporated into him until its full eschatological manifestation Then all those he has redeemed and made, I'm still quoting the catechism, made holy and blameless before him in love. And we could pause there. We could unpack this word by word. You see now how this is all, this all becomes incorporated. See, in this concept of redemption of Hayom, the day, the eschatological day, the future day, the day of redemption, the day of the covering of sin, the day of God's revealing himself fully so that we will know him even as we are known. St. Paul takes this directly from the rabbinical reflections. And we have that day yet calling to us And we will be gathered together as one people of God. This is the one olive tree. Those who are yet to know fully. And this begins, of course, with those who we pray for in the triduum. We pray in the triduum for the chosen people, for the Jewish people who are remembered, think of that, the highest feast of the body of Christ, the highest feast in the church. And who are we praying for as we prepare, as we move toward that pinnacle? Who are we praying for? We are praying for the chosen people. People ask me all the time, what can I read that will help me? I have a Jewish family member. Or I have a child who's converted to Judaism to marry a Jewish person. Or uh, I have grandchildren who are being circumcised. Their father is Jewish. Uh, What can I read? I have a Jewish neighbor, a colleague, a friend, lifelong. What can I read? I tell them, read the Catechism. It has some of the finest theology of the Jewish people ever written in history. Magnificent. Read the Catechism just go in and look in the the index for Israel and Jews and you'll find their magnificent deep, deep exposition of the meaning of the Jewish people so we will be gathered together as one people of God, the bride of the Lamb is what the catechism says, the bride of the Lamb who is this? We are called up called forward to the day. And what will it be? The marriage supper of the? of the Lamb. See? And the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. We could ponder this, the meaning of the glory of God, the fullness of God, his revealing of himself. This is what the glory of god is for the wall of the city had 12 foundations now what does this recollect for us it brings back to us the 12 tribes of israel the 12 patriarchs don't forget them the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles there it is and On them the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So the whole foundation of the church, her walls, and her future as she's called to the height, to the highest, that great Easter day, Yet future for us, the day of the Lord, all embodied in the Lamb. So the Lamb calls to us from the past, from the foundation that was laid in the revelation that was given through the patriarchs, beginning with Melchizedek and all the way down. Here comes the call of the lamb from the past, from the present, from the divine presence in the Eucharist, and from the future day. So the lamb is not only an image from the past and one that communicates Christ's grace to us in the present, but also in the future. So there is an eschatological meaning of the Lamb. That's the postscript. In a recently discovered sermon of St. Melito of Sardis, he declares, Christ is the Passover that is our salvation. It is he who endured every kind of suffering in all those who foreshadowed him In Abel he was slain, in Isaac bound, in Jacob exiled, in Joseph sold, in Moses exposed to die. He was persecuted in David, dishonored in the prophets, and was sacrificed in the Passover lamb. It is he who was made man of the virgin, he who was hung on the tree. It is he who was buried in the earth, raised from the dead, and taken up to the heights of heaven. He is the mute lamb, the slain lamb, the lamb born of Mary. This is what my Jewish hitchhiking friend glimpsed in the back seat of my Chevy. All those years ago. Oh, and by the way, sometime later we received a card from him telling us he had been baptized. <laughs> Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you.
2: Thank you, God. Thank you very much, Father Paul. Father has dedicated his life to saving children. And he himself is a married priest. He has nine children himself. So I have that one Bible left in the back. And I would just, as a gift for Easter, to Father's work, to his pro-life work, I was wondering if we might just get a quick, uh, see what we can get for it as a way of donating to his work to save the babies. Huh? So he's asking $25, a regular price on there of 50 I think we could at least get someone that would give to his work $50 for that Bible. $60. $60, okay. $100, okay, that's more like it, yes. All right. You got 120, okay, $125, how about $135? $200, okay. $200, $225 is a gift for Father Paul's work. Thank you very much.
3: Mm, Mm.
2: Father, will you give a special blessing over the Bible also? In Hebrew and English. (laughs) Okay, good, 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 good. good. Okay, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back.
3: Now, I did bring the article that I wrote for the Journey Home magazine for Marcus Grodi, who pestered me for two or three years and finally I succumbed and I wrote the article and they've given us permission to reprint it so I brought that with me and that's in a short booklet form there uh, which tells you the story of my family's journey to the church, three generations and 72 years as we returned as a Jewish family to the Catholic Church and uh, that story is there and then also this gives me an opportunity to tell you that I have my talk tonight in printed form. Now, this is Stichlach. This is a shtick, okay? Because I found that if I pass it out beforehand, people are just a little less likely to listen and assimilate. And so I pass out the notes after the presentation. So you have all the scripture texts and the quotations and the citations, from St. John Chrysostom and all the rest that I've used and drawn on. And that's available tonight, too. But I want to add just to Father Deacon's testimony with regard to his encounter with the liturgy at the vigil and uh, the Easter celebration. I remember very well my first Easter. Growing up in the synagogue uh, in the Hebrew school, I remember very many times... I know this doesn't happen to Catholic young people, but I would get bored and uh, I would sit in the, uh, I would sit in the pew and I would look up and we had a beautiful rotunda and a beveled ceiling. And within that was painted in fresco, the great patriarchs. There was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, King David, I remember them very well in my mind. They're emblazoned in my memory. And this would tell the great story of the Jewish people, of revelation and of redemption. And I I could see this. And for many years, I looked at these images in the ceiling of the synagogue. But one of the distinctions was we would observe the death of the great patriarchs. We recalled their deaths, the story of Moses' death the story of David's death, the story of Abraham's death. All were told in the Bible. And we knew that these men had limited lives. And, of course, that was very important for us. That was formation for us to understand that our days on earth are limited and we have to, we have to live them in such a way that they bring meaning not only in this life but in the life to come. So there was nothing wrong with this. But now I come to the Christians. Now their founder, their Moses, their David, it doesn't stay dead. This was something we never spoke about in Hebrew school. We never talked about the resurrection. Even in, I mean, I'm talking about the general resurrection. In a general sense, we never spoke about it. Not that I recall. But now I come to a Jewish gospel. I, I was challenged by a friend whose dad was a Methodist pastor. And it was really his agency that led me to respond to the claims of Christ on my life. So I'll forever be indebted, forever be indebted to his family, to that pastor, and to that community where I was baptized. But He was the one who challenged me. He said, well, read it. And he handed me the New Testament. And uh, so I opened it and I read from Matthew. I read Matthew. Uh, What do you do with a book? You read from the beginning, right? So I read Matthew. And what is Matthew? It's the Jewish gospel. And everything I read was a reflection of what I knew. There was nothing anti-Jewish, un-Jewish, non-Jewish about this. The whole story was a Jewish story. And so this drew me in. And I said to my friend, I'd like to go to church with you. And it was Easter that, well, it was Good Friday that he first brought me to. uh, The seven last words of Christ. And we sat through three hours of the seven last words of Christ. Uh, And then, of course, the somber, there's no vigil. You know, in the Methodist Church, there's no vigil on Saturday night. But there's a quietness about Holy Saturday. It's that day of somberness on Holy Saturday and then to church on Easter Sunday. And here, this one who died an agonizing death on Friday now rises. From, I remember walking home. I was 15 years old. And I remember walking home from that Easter Sunday service and walking home and being so filled so utterly filled with wonder on this story of Jesus rising from the dead. It was unheard of, in my experience, that one would triumph over death. And so this is a marvelous occasion for us to reach out to our unchurched friends and those who have sadly been robbed of the great story of the gospel by an increasingly materialistic, consumerist, and secular society. So it's a great time to invite them all in. And that goes for Jews, and Protestants, and Muslims, and unchurched. My brother, my, my identical twin brother, is a Protestant minister. You know, He's an evangelical minister, a Methodist ordained, but a member of the uh, Evangelical Church Alliance for a little while longer. Uh. <laughs> I'll be joining him tonight for the vigil at the Supreme Court.
0: Father, you mentioned that there are questions about the actual day of the Last Supper, but aren't there also questions about the nature of the Last Supper? And some people say it was the Seder meal, some say it was the Sabbath, some say it was a combination of a Seder-Sabbath meal. Could you comment on some of those ideas?
3: Yes, um, this is a very active discussion among uh, biblical scholars, theologians, and uh, historians of the time, and uh, it's a very lively one. I think that the evidence that Last Supper was a Seder is compelling, and I think my own opinion is that it's irresistible. There are reasons why questions are raised, and one of them is because of the... uh, If you follow the timing, there's a timing difficulty. But there's something from Judaism today, which carries all the way back to at least the time of Rabbi Akiva, which is very, very early in rabbinic Judaism, and that is that even today we have two days of Passover. We have two first days of Passover, the first day of Passover and the second first day of Passover. (laughs) All right, so there are always two first days of Passover, and this seems to echo this problem with the calendar, which was a very real problem. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were at loggerheads on a number of very essential questions at the temple, and uh, this suggestion, drawn from some evidence of the time frame seems to explain this issue. Now, you need to understand, when I say Thursday and Friday, I'm simplifying it. I don't think I'm oversimplifying it. I'm simplifying it. Much more complex explanations, but they go to this sequence, this difference. This is also reflected in the Talmud and the Mishnah, uh, which also say that it is non-essential to have the lamb flesh at the Passover Seder what is absolutely non-negotiable is the matzah. Without the unleavened bread, there is no Passover. The lamb, you can do without. The flesh of the lamb. So all these little things, hints come to us over the centuries, they seem to indicate. There's a lot of good work in this respect. Everything from Joachim Jeremias, who was a great Lutheran theologian who did this extensive study, probably the most significant of the 20th century, and he lands on the Last Supper being the Seder. All the way up to today, some of the scholars that are writing, Bruce Chilton, who's an Anglican uh, Protestant theologian who's done very significant work. You've seen his books, Rabbi Jesus, Rabbi Paul, fabulous work. You know, some have suggested it might have been the anti dinner to Passover. But it didn't make any difference. The rabbis instilled in that the same value as the Passover Seder, if it was in anticipation of the Passover. Father Paul. Yes. What holds the Holy Father back from inviting the Jewish church to recognize
1: the Messiah has come?
3: Um, I talked to him about this, actually. No, I didn't. (laughs) I uh, we were chatting the other day I'm, I was texting um, uh, once again to go back to the catechism when you read the catechism you see the depth of love of the church for the Jewish people expressed probably no greater than in the words of, of blessed John Paul and He had both the spiritual love and he had the literal real-life love for the Jewish people. And they knew that. They knew that. When I was in um, uh, the Holy City, Jerusalem, with Blessed John Paul for the papal pilgrimage between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, uh, we went to the sepulchre church. And there, Blessed John Paul the Great would uh, celebrate the Mass in the sepulchre it was, it, was, it was heaven. and But before uh, the Holy Father came, uh, we had to be sent out for a complete security sweep and then returned back in to our seats. So on the return, I was uh, standing in line, waiting to re-enter the sepulcher. And before me, like some apparition, Are two small Jewish people, just like my Bubby and Zadie, uh, my great grandparents. And they're standing just before me. And uh, I know them. I know them. You know, I I knew they were not uh, uh, Goyim. (laughs) And so I was feeling some endearment, and then I glanced and she moved her arm, her little arm, and she had the tattooed numbers on her forearm. And I looked and I saw below his sleeve and above his watch another tattoo mark, and I knew they were both survivors. Here they were, Jewish survivors. What, coming to the sepulcher in Jerusalem. I would later learn they were guests of Blessed John Paul, invited guests of Blessed John Paul, Holocaust survivors, very deep love. I don't believe any of that love is lost with our Holy Father now. Perhaps it isn't the same quality in that respect of the personal friendship, depth of friendship, just because of life circumstances. But still, we know from our bishops, and you know, I've been around. Hebrew School, Missionary Bible College, Evangelical Seminary, Anglican Church. I've been around the block a little bit. okay? Uh, when I was in Rome, I met Cardinal Martino, and I had sent up my calling card, and when he came to greet me, he said, "Now he said, "You were Jewish, and then you were a Protestant, and now you are a Catholic." He said, "You're not going anywhere from here.") And I said, I said, your eminence, I have a Hebrew name, a Greek name, and a Latin name. I can add no more names. Uh, And um, the bishops, every year, the depth of my understanding of their pastoral concerns is increased. There is a very careful pastoral concern because should we present ourselves in such a way as to say, we have and you don't? What is human nature? To push back, right? But here at the National Basilica, when we celebrated the 40th year of Nostra Ate, uh, Ted Koppel was the MC that, maybe you were there or saw that. There was such harmony between the Jews and the Catholics there that that's what makes it so attractive. There's a quietness about Catholic evangelization. And, you know, I know we could add some chutzpah into the church. I know we can. And the bishops do, too. But there's a very careful one-on-one, fine. Open the doors of proclamation. Community to community, I think it's better to take the slower approach. And I would expect that would be the Holy Father's feelings in that regard. Yes.
1: The last time we were with you, you were talking about the relationship between the priest who was sacrificing and the animal that was being offered. And you mentioned something about the priest taking his face near the face of the animal and sharing the breath of the victim. I just caught part of it. Could you elaborate on it if you have a moment?
3: Yeah, this is the, on Yom Kippur, there were two principal sacrifices, one was either the goat or the lamb that was slaughtered and its blood was collected and then spattered about in the sanctuary and the other was the azatzel, the scapegoat and the scapegoat was the one that was banished to the desert, to the wilderness. It was run off and in that case, the Hebrew, if we translate it literally, when it says that the priest shall lay his hands upon the animal, That word, to lay hands, it's not the Hebrew word for touch. It's to lay one's full weight upon that animal. In fact, the image is more of prostration than it is of what we imagine as the laying on of hands. And imagine, if you will, a goat. Uh, You're going to walk up to the goat and say, "Um, stand here, please, while I lay my hands. (laughs) A goat. A goat. Right? No, you're going to wrestle the goat. And that's the image that's given there. Is The priest puts his full weight upon what? To suppress the goat and bears his full weight upon that goat. And the, the image that comes... Keep in mind, Hebrew is a pictorial language. It's, it derives from pictographs. And Hebrew words are very evocative. They bring pictures immediately to your mind. And the picture that you have when you read this in the Hebrew Bible... The picture you have is of the priest laying his face and his hands and full weight on that animal. Imagine, you smell the animal. You see the animal's eyes. You've done this. You've re- Come on, you've wrestled your puppy, right? <laughs> and you get close to the animal and you hear the animal breathing and you smell the animal. You take in the scent, even the taste of the animal. You feel that, that connection of life and then that animal takes the sins of the people and runs them off into the wilderness. It's a very powerful imagery. And I I think it, you know, it goes to this, the exchange of life that happens there, because as I said, the breath of life, the literal breathing, the animal's not stopping breathing. It's a living sacrifice to begin with. So the breathing continues. Your breathing continues. The priest's breathing continues. There's an exchange of the ruach hachaim, the spirit of life that comes between the two. Uh, All of this is evoked in the Hebrew. Nefesh. Oh, this powerful word for soul in Hebrew. Nefesh, the living soul, the living being. God breathed into Adam, and Adam became nefesh, a living being. The nefesh in Hebrew is open throat, the exchange of life, right? The breathing... The speaking, the eating, all of this takes place through the open throat. That's one of the most evocative words in Hebrew.
2: Well, we have a uh, an email that came in. Do you ever pray, or I guess the question is really, is it okay for Catholics to pray to the Old Testament prophets and saints?
3: Oh, whoa, whoa. that one's beyond me. Pray to the Old Test, to the old. Well, in the Eastern tradition, are not many of the prophets and patriarchs named among the saints, yes, uh, they saw Christ, right, they anticipated him, he went into Hades and he set free those who were waiting in anticipation, did this happen, I have to bow to my eastern brothers to tell me, did this happen on the day of the resurrection, you know, when the liberation came during the the, the Holy Saturday, I don't know, and did that liberation happen, but I think in the full tradition of the church, we certainly receive them as among the holy ones. So to pray to them, um, there are certain prayers that could be made to them. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Father. All right. Thank you, Jay.
2: Just, just to conclude on that thought and, and to send you uh, home, St. Epiphanius gives is. us, as he meditates upon the harrowing of Hades, as Christ descended into Hades, it was Adam who recognized the footsteps of God, remembering those footsteps from whom he had fled. And now he came running, asking for forgiveness and was given life in the resurrection. So absolutely, we do pray. In fact, in the old Roman liturgy, there is an optional feast on December 24th, the day before the birth of the new Adam, for the feast of Saints Adam and Eve. So absolutely pray to the holy men and women of the Old Testament.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work,